Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 42 in our series for 2021. And today's date is Friday, November the 19th. First, I'll be talking to John Snyman, Empire Practice Manager for the Modern Workplace. We'll examine how the remote working trend has dramatically accelerated over the past 12 months, which means organisations increasingly take a cloud-first approach to facilitate daily production. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about market trends ahead. But now, let's talk to John Snyman. John, tell us about the importance of cloud-first. So, things have changed quite a lot in how customers use their business or use use technology, and, and cloud has certainly opened up quite a bit of a opportunity for for customers, whether it's at home or customers in the business sense, to expand their business quite quick. And the agility of the cloud solutions obviously allows for that quite a lot. The biggest thing is why people adopt the cloud is probably the cost part of it, um, that they can consume it when they need it and they can drop it when they don't need it anymore. So subscription-based, consumption-based is obviously the biggest thing that people, why they're adopting the cloud. Now, the cloud is really good for a lot of businesses to to consume and to use um, to make things work. And, and it obviously helps with not having to invest a lot of uh, capital up front to get things up and go. So a lot of customers are using cloud just for the sake of driving a quick adoption of a technology or driving a quick adoption of a specific solution, sometimes long term. Um, and sometimes it is just a short use that I need something to tie me over and then I move on. So, I mean, could it be used on any systems like customer CRM systems or enterprise resource planning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that used to be some of the largest investments that customers have was specifically in that ERP and CRM solutions. That is still the case. It's usually larger types of projects and larger types of spending to get to that point. But these days, the, the fact that you can use an industry standard application that's already built in the cloud and it's not a case of that you have to build it from scratch and have to uh, implement everything from scratch and buy the hardware and implement everything that's forming the platform for it as well but you can just set up and configure it so it's a more of a project to f- to focus on the value added side of that application and configure it to the way you need it and then consume it so those are obviously the bigger ones 
um, the cloud services in that in those types of applications. It's an industry standard already done. It, most of those organizations have already gone through all the rigor and getting it certified with most of the industry standards that's, uh, that's available and, uh, and you know what you get. It's already backed up. They've provided all the backend systems in place to make sure that the backups are done, the disaster recovery is in place. All of that plumbing and, and maintenance is already done by the provider um, and you as a customer can solely focus on the business value side of it. And that is a configuration of what you need to get out of it. What about the security issues of cloud? I understand it's very, very secure. It's, it's one of those tricky ones because inherently the providers do secure their environments, but that does not mean that everything that you've set up is inherently secure. You still have very a lot of control in how you set up your systems and you're part of that application. So the application itself is secure, but you can you can always make mistakes and give people access that they shouldn't get access to. And the applications, the software as a service applications, is probably more secure than what you can do as a as an implementation if you had to do it on premise for yourself. So yes, that is definitely more secure because they do ad- adhere to a lot of the security standards but it still requires a specialist to make sure that the way that you implement it for yourself and configure it for yourself, that you've actually configured it securely for yourself. Otherwise you can still be fairly left open for vulnerabilities there to get uh, compromised. If you don't implement proper procedures and policies, for instance, for password controls to allow your users to use just very simple passwords or no passwords at all in, in some of those and then you, you still have a, a fairly high risk of being, uh, being compromised. So, so the onus is really on you to actually develop or maintain the security? Uh, you still have to have a policy for your organizations um, or yourself in terms of securing yourself and securing your identity because that is the thing at the moment that is that's the, the landscape has changed big time in terms of the cloud services where previously it was all about your perimeter firewalls that would cover you from a security point of view and then secure your environment because everything inside that perimeter was secure and everything outside we don't trust. Nowadays, when you consume in the new world with cloud services, everything in the cloud is governed by your identity, who you are, and how do you, how do you prove who you are? And part of that is obviously your username, part of it is your password, in part, and sometimes um, these days, the norm is starting to, to be of using a multi-factor authentication of some sorts. Just like you use your bank credentials and open get to your banking systems, that is also a cloud platform most of the times. Um, it could be a private cloud for some of those banks. It could be a public cloud, but most of the banks will probably still use uh, sorry private clouds for that. And that is the environment. It's a software they use, but... You still can be hacked if you don't use strong passwords for yourself or you, if you are irresponsible in showing your passwords in, uh, for other people to use. Uh, how has the uh, remote working and working from home affected cloud? Well, that has certainly put a, quite a lot of strain on a lot of organizations because not, not everybody was prepared to have a swing from where they used to have maybe 20% of their users working from home some of the time and 80% of them on prem in, in the office to now to a total swing of probably the other way around. And sometimes in some cases, probably hundred percent of your users working from home. So 
that is certainly create a big dynamic um, and, and challenge for our customers where they don't have all of that set up in place to to allow for that. And that, that's where the cloud and public cloud certainly makes a big difference. If you do have that set up, then it doesn't matter where you are accessing from, you can still get to your applications, you can still get to your business, you can still do, do your work um, as per normal. But it's certainly changed the security landscape quite a lot because previously we, we did have a lot of your devices would have been on your network at some stage. So you could patch it, you can manage your, your devices and make sure that your laptops are patched to the latest updates and security updates. Now it's created quite a bit of a challenge where people rely on you to be on a network to do it, but you're not. You're working from home. So it's definitely created quite a lot of challenge for, for our customers. It would create a lot of challenge for customer, for, for companies with a lot of uh, remote working employees, wouldn't it? Because the onus would be on them, wouldn't it? Absolutely, because now you are connecting to your environment from a unsecured location and unsecured network because your home network, I don't know if your home network is secure. I don't know if your neighbor is listening into your wireless and tapped into it um, and what other devices might be on your network and if those devices are actually secure or if any of them has been breached. You know, the, the thing that you're talking about from a security point of view that is a very, very common use in the, in the, in the hacker community is that principle of lateral movement. That means that if I hack one of your devices in your home and I compromise that one, then I can move to another device on the same network laterally. I don't need to hit your, your primary objective first. I can hit a soft target first, get that one, sit there, listen, spoof your, your passwords that you use, and then try those passwords against your other devices that might be on the same network. So that is, that is a very common and a very typical typical behavior that they use, not just on home, hacking into home systems, but obviously hacking into to, to business systems as well. And if, for instance, if that is the CFO working at home and I manage to hack into his kid's computer because the kid might not have a strong password and dad uses that computer every now and again and happen to use the same password that he used at work, which is not uncommon. We do seem to be creatures of habit to use the same passwords that we use everywhere just to make it easy on ourselves, then I know. I know that the CFO's password and I can try it on his, uh, on his corporate uh, identities. So uh, companies need to apprise their employees of the security issues of working with cloud. They do. And there's certainly, there's a concept, what we call zero trust. Zero trust means that we don't trust, we verify everything. And that means that although you are employee of our company, Every time that you get access to or need to use a resource or, or application that we will verify. We will verify if this is a legitimate attempt to use the software and we will verify who you are. And we will use as many different technologies and, and techniques to verify that you are truly who you say you are. That could be location, that could be password, that could be a second factor authentication, that could be a device we know this device or we don't know the device and therefore we'll allow you or we won't allow you. Or travel, you are trying to access, access the, the environment from, from a different country. Right now we know that the chances of you being traveling globally is pretty tough, you wouldn't be. So that is probably one of the easiest ways at the moment that we can identify that this is a potential hack 
compromise a password or username if somebody's suddenly successfully logging in from another country where we don't expect him to log in from. Well, John, all of those are very wise words and thank you very much for enlightening us. No problem. Thank you. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Craig, uh, what's happening in the market starting week November 22nd? Well, there's a spattering of economic data. Yes, I wouldn't say it's a huge week to watch out for, but if the Reserve Bank wasn't featuring somewhere in the week, we'd be a little bit disappointed. Fortunately, we've got a number of speeches from Reserve Bank officials on the 23rd uh, coming up on Tuesday is Marion Cola, head of domestic markets, and she'll be uh, presenting with a speech entitled Security Markets Through the Pandemic. So we'll watch out for that one. Uh, and then, yes, later in the week on Wednesday, we've got Michelle Bullock, Assistant Governor for the Financial System. She'll be talking about central bank digital currencies, which should be a very interesting talk to see whether the Reserve Bank updates its policy on things like Bitcoin or all things, yes, the digital currency. So those are the two focus in terms of Reserve Bank events. In terms of economic data, I don't think you can go past the capital expenditure figures, the private capital expenditure figures, as is always the case with this. It's a Bureau of Statistics survey, and it provides data uh, on what's happened for the September quarter and also gives you an expectation to what businesses are expecting to, to invest or spend on uh, building and equipment. Uh, over a coming months and quarters. So those capital expenditure figures will be important to be able to see how the Australian economy is tracking. As I say, not just looking backwards in terms of the September quarter, but looking forward in terms of what businesses are planning to spend on. It will be a little bit complicated because it's September quarter figures and they, they may pick up the fact that your businesses may have been surveyed at a time when uh, lockdowns were occurring in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. So maybe a little bit on the soft side. So uh, we'll have to watch out for to see uh, sort of what sort of results we get out from that. But the June quarter results were quite, uh, quite encouraging. We had 4.4% growth in terms of business spending in the June quarter. Similar sort of percentage point rises for buildings as well as equipment. So watch out for those capital expenditure figures on the, uh, the 25th coming up on, on Thursday. We'll also have the, the weekly payrolls data from the Bureau of Statistics, as is always the, the case, looking at jobs as well as uh, wages. And the other thing to focus on is the retail trade figures coming out on Friday in the coming week. In September, there was a 1.3% rise, 1.7% annual. But these are figures for the month of October. And again, it's a little bit complicated because we were in the early parts of um, October, we were in uh, lockdown, particularly in New South Wales, and uh, came out on the uh, 11th of October. And then later in the month, we saw uh, Victoria and also the ACT come out of lockdown. So it may be, again, a little bit complicated by the fact of lockdowns. And I suppose really once we get data on November, December, then we'll start to get some clearer reads from the economy. But uh, the September quarter figures certainly have been complicated a little bit by the Delta strain, yes, of the lockdowns caused by the Delta strain over the southeast of the, the country. So those are the, the real highlights. The other in terms of economic data to watch out for in Australia anyway is the construction work done figures out on Wednesday.
That gives us an idea of uh, how much investment in residential um, building was done. That's a, a component for the economic growth figures coming out uh, in a few weeks after the fact. And uh, also uh, the capital expenditure figures, they're important as well as an input in terms of the economic growth equation. Remembering, of course, we're going to get a weak reading for the September quarter in terms of economic growth. Our current expectation is a, a 4.3% fall in economic economic activity in the September quarter before we do get a bounce back in the December quarter. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, all of that would indicate that these figures coming out in uh, the September quarter are going to be, they're going to be very difficult to read and they're not going to be a real indication of where we are. Yes, I think it is going to be a case that we're going to have to watch these figures very, very closely just to do a little bit more analysis than perhaps we ordinarily would do because of the complications in terms of Delta. There's not much we can do about that. All we can do is either uh, just read through the figures and say, well, okay, that's ancient history now. We have to uh, bypass this data and look forward. Uh, But um, there there may be some uh, signs in there that we need to be able to focus on. As I say, in terms of the capital expenditure figures, we do have the forward-looking component of that, the expectations of investment. As we've been saying, the the, uh, figures, again, could be a little bit complicated by by Delta. If we look to... uh, one of the other readings that comes out, you know, sort of in the coming week, one we probably, you know, sort of should pay a little bit more attention to than what we do at the moment. Uh, the market organisation has their flash reading of purchasing managers index and also the services index. So we'll get some up-to-date readings in terms of activity in the manufacturing and services sector. Now, the market organisation does these purchasing manager type surveys not just here in Australia, but right the way across the globe. And that's coming out on Tuesday and uh, probably a little bit more timely, not as comprehensive in terms of the official data coming out from the Bureau of Statistics. It is, again, you know, sort of a somewhat limited survey. But um, given the fact that you know, it's fairly up to date, it's a flash reading for, for November, it could end up providing over the week a little bit more information than what we're getting out from the official statistics now. 
As I say, it happens not just here in Australia, but across the, the globe. In the United States also on Tuesday, there's that market flash, flash reading. The other things to watch out in terms of the United States, everyone's favourite uh, dinner party conversation at the moment is inflation. And the US seems to be very much spooked by inflation at the moment. So watch out on Wednesday for the personal income and spending figures. It's got an inflation uh, reading attached to it. So certainly something that we want to be focusing upon. Also out on Wednesday in the United States is the GDP economic growth figures, currently showing a good solid annual rate of growth of 6.7%. And then um, on Thursday in the United States, We've got minutes of the last Federal Reserve meeting, and that should be uh, sort of interesting because it was the meeting which decided on starting the wind back in terms of a stimulus, and we'll see what the Federal Reserve members had to say in terms of that wind back situation. So it could be a disjointed week, but it could end up being an interesting week too. Yeah, so there's a, certainly no shortage of things that are happening. Well, the, the inflation figures are interesting because of rising. They've spooked everyone in the US. So they're actually rising here, but not as significantly here. But it certainly would be exercising the minds of the Reserve Bank. Well, yes, it's all the case of whether the inflation that we're seeing at the moment is temporary or transitory. Now, what's happening in terms of inflation is pretty simple to be able to understand. What we've had is... Um, lockdowns across the, the globe and that's prevented from workers from going back into the factories, going back into their businesses and producing the, the goods that we, we need. At the same time, what we've seen in more recent times is the reopening of the some of the economies. So economies are reopening after the Delta you know, lockdowns and the consumers are stepping up to the plate quite quickly and saying we want to buy a whole range of goods. Unfortunately, because uh, we've had lockdowns, the amount of goods that are being produced and uh, in inventory are not enough to be able to keep up with demand. So what we're seeing is strong demand, not enough supply, and that's why we're seeing prices you know, sort of rise. And that's why at the heart of it, you know, so why the uh, Federal Reserve is talking about whether these figures are going to be transitory or temporary, because once you get more and more people back to work and starting to produce again, that supply lifts and what we should see is some of the price pressures abate. The, the concern, of course, is the longer that inflation is elevated, we start to get consumers and businesses to say, well, the um, sustainable rate of inflation is now 3% or 3.5% rather than what we previously had at 2%. So if inflation expectations are affected, that's the concern for central banks it makes it more difficult for them to get that inflation rate you know, sort of back down. And the last thing that they want to do in the current environment is go too hard because they want to make sure that economic recoveries are in place before they have to start winding back too much in terms of the stimulus. So it is a very interesting situation. We had back in the 1970s a situation called stagflation where we had stagnant economies and relatively high inflation. That's a very, very hard thing to treat for Federal Reserve or for central banks generally across the, the globe. Uh, the last thing that we want to see in the current environment is a return to those bad old days in the 1970s. So you'd say the central banks everywhere, including the Reserve Bank, will be watching out for a return of stagflation of the 70s? Well, yes, yeah, certainly stagflation is getting a little bit more focused than what you know, sort of it's had for, for, for quite some time. We're still seeing reasonable growth happening in you know, sort of a number of economies, and that's because the stimulus hasn't been taken away. But if we did have COVID 
uh, come back uh, with constraining output in terms of uh, or constraining economic activity across the globe, you know, see it again. And we've got these high inflation readings at a time when there's um, new mobility restrictions or lockdowns because of COVID. Uh, we could see that stagflationary situation come through. So it's, as I say, it's something which central banks do not want to see because what do you do in terms of policy? Do you rank, rank it up and you know, sort of rack it up you know, sort of to faster a growth pace uh, to try and revive the economy? But if you do that, are you therefore reigniting inflationary pressures? It's a really difficult one to treat. So you'd be watching, so all the central banks would be watching the coronavirus figures very closely. Yes, certainly you know, sort of the, it's a, a virus or disease which hasn't gone away. It's going to be with us for quite some time. Certainly vaccination rates or high vaccination rates are the, the solution. That's what we want to see right the way across the globe. Australia has done very, very well in a short space of time. We've effectively gone past a lot of the other countries around the world getting up to 90, 95% double dose targets in some of our you know, sort of economies. New South Wales above 90% double dose. And that enables our economy to open up, you know, sort of a, a whole lot, you know, sort of a, with less restrictions. But um, it's interesting. We've gone past some of the countries across the globe in Europe, in the United States and in China in terms of our vaccination rates. So while we're reasonably sitting pretty near you know, where we are in Australia, there's concerns in other parts of the world. Germany has recently had uh, the highest uh, case numbers that they've ever seen. And there's been some concerns in China about case numbers you know, sort of rising as well. And that's led to uh, restrictions in Beijing uh, in terms of people wanting to get into that city from other regions that have been affected by the COVID virus. So it certainly hasn't gone away. But uh, the, the solution for, for all countries is to, to make sure that they get those vax rates up to as high as possible. So therefore, they haven't got to lock down the economies again. So and the other solution is to watch this space carefully. Watch this space very, very carefully, Leon. Indeed. Well, Craig, thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. So what's happening in the news? Well, Australia signed an international request for countries to strengthen 2030 emissions reduction goals by next year. But within hours of agreeing to the Glasgow Climate Pact, the Morrison government, facing a 2022 election, told voters it had no intention of changing its fixed target. The Glasgow Climate Pact, signed by Australia, demands countries to phase down coal power and urges nations to strengthen their climate targets by the end of next year. Scott Morrison doesn't think a global agreement to reduce reliance on coal power is the end for Australia's industry. He believes will continue for decades. This put the Prime Minister at odds with his British counterpart, Boris Johnson, who described the agreement at the COP26 climate summit as coal's death knell. And heavyweight investors are poised to heap further pressure on the nation's biggest carbon emitters in the wake of a damning report that slams boards of climate-exposed companies for not taking climate risks seriously. The boards of 15 companies, including ASX-listed Adbri, AGL, BHP, InsiTech Pivot, Oil Search, Qantas, South32, Woodside and Woolworths, still don't see climate change as a material or existential risk, according to the Investor Group on Climate Change, which represents investors with total funds under management of more than $2 trillion. These companies account for 25% of Australia's total Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions, and 40% of reported corporate emissions, also for Scope 1 and 2. The revelations come in the wake of two weeks of talks at the UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow and promise to dial up the heat on Australia's most carbon-intensive companies following a last-minute COP26 agreement that saw global leaders sign up to a new climate pact to curb global warming. 
The Glasgow Climate Pact calls on countries to phase down rather than phase out coal power and urges nations to strengthen their climate targets by the end of next year. The word change to phase down coal use came after a last-minute intervention from India. As part of its analysis, the IGCC studied five years of company disclosures, including annual reports, board disclosures, investor presentations, and each board's skills matrix to see what progress had been made since the Paris Agreement at the end of 2015. Of the 15 companies, 14 have net zero emission targets. Insitec Pivot is a sole outlier. But even with these targets, boards do not appear prepared to lead the transition, according to the IGCC report's lead researcher, Ian Woods. And Woodside Petroleum has secured a $4.9 billion commitment from a US-based infrastructure giant for its Pluto LNG expansion project, clearing the way for the biggest resources project to be built in the country for almost a decade, even as the Glasgow Climate Pact steps up emissions pressures. Global Infrastructure Partners is buying a 49% stake in the $7.6 billion onshore LNG processing unit to be built at Woodside's Pluto site in Western Australia, which will treat low-carbon gas from the offshore Scarborough field for about 30 years. It will pay the bulk of the cost to build the onshore infrastructure, reducing the financial burden on Woodside, which had made a sell-down of its 100% stake in Pluto II, a condition for going ahead with a broader $16 billion project, a decision due next month. The deal means GIP is joining Woodside in betting on an extended future for natural gas usage in Asia, despite the pressure evident at COP26 and more broadly to move away from fossil fuels. The Glasgow Climate Pact commits signatories to phase down coal use and roll back fossil fuel subsidies as part of efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees, but includes no specific wording on natural gas. Environmental activists immediately promised to halt the project, which Greenpeace described as the most climate-polluting project ever. An oil search is being sued for bullying the female CFO out of a job. The Chief Executive and Chief Financial Officer of one of Australia's largest oil and gas company, Oil Search, bullied and harassed its new financial executive to the point where she was forced to leave her job, an explosive lawsuit against a $9 billion company alleges. Oil Search has been accused of driving Aitan Saradas out of her job after it failed to provide a safe workplace and undermined her attempts to raise the alarm over critical and urgent funding issues that were allegedly hidden from the company's board when she was due to take over from the Chief Financial Officer Stephen Gardner this year. And Commonwealth Bank has reported a 20% rise in unaudited first quarter cash profit to $2.2 billion driven by above system growth in the key markets of deposits, home loans and business loans. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison's warning that interest rates could be higher without the coalition in power has been hosed down by Reserve Bank of Australia Governor Philip Lowe, who is firm the cash rate is likely to remain at the record low of 0.1% until 2024. The Reserve Bank Governor told a meeting of economists that Australia remains well-placed to weather a perfect storm of inflationary pressures triggered by the COVID pandemic without resorting to an early raising of the cash rate, although how the labour market responds remains uncertain. Dr Lowe on Tuesday maintained his view that a recent jump in consumer prices did not warrant an increase in the cash rate in 2022, as markets have been betting. There would be a case, he said, to lift the cash rate now at a record low of 0.1% before 2024, as currently flagged by the RBA, if the global inflation shock turns out to be more persistent than expected. A key unknown is how quickly the labour market will tighten as swathes of the economy recover from lengthy lockdowns. That could determine how rapidly wages rise and whether they feed expectations of further price increases to come. And wages growth in the September quarter rose 0.4% over the quarter and 1.7% over the year. 
Wages rose 0.5% in the private sector and 0.4% in the public sector. Annual wage growth fell to a record low of 1.4% in the depths of a COVID-19 pandemic. The Reserve Bank wants to see annual growth of 3%, which it expects will keep inflation sustainably within its target range of 2-3%. And Australian businesses have warned the bottlenecks choking global supply chains are unlikely to be resolved soon, amid predictions soaring shipping costs will add to inflation by lifting the price of imports. With global markets fixated on the risk that higher inflation could raise interest rates from record lows, companies including telecommunications giant Optus, explosives maker Orica and boost juice owner Retail Zoo have underlined the severe disruption to, to supply lines. The supply chain problems, which are leading to widespread shortages and delays in the delivery of goods, come as many companies are also facing wage pressure as they scramble to find staff. And Telstra Chief Executive Andy Penn says the telecommunication giant's new joint venture with homegrown data and analytics group Quantium will help accelerate Telstra's use of artificial intelligence amid a savage war for tech talent. Under the deal, Telstra and Quantium will form a jointly owned firm that will initially focus on developing products and services for Telstra's enterprise customers in sectors such as mining, agribusiness and logistics. The huge data sets travelling across Telstra's networks will be married with the data and AI capabilities of Quantium, which was started 19 years ago and is now 75% owned by retail giant Woolworths. And members of Melbourne's Smorgan and Lieberman families have bankrolled a campaign against Premier Daniel Andrews' proposed pandemic powers, which have sparked public protests ahead of a vote in the Victorian Parliament this week. Ben Krasnerstein, a member of the wealthy Smorgan family, has joined other Melbourne Blue Buds to bankroll the advertisements which have appeared or will appear across The Age, The Australian and The Australian Financial Review. Mr Krasnerstein has started a Change.org petition whose signatories include other high-profile Victorians, including Dale Smorgan, Simon Holmes Accord and Ben Razines. Thousands turned out in protests against vaccine mandates and the proposed laws over the weekend as Victoria's daily new COVID-19 cases fell, the first time new cases were under 1,000 since September. The proposed laws give the Premier authority to declare a pandemic and the Health Minister, rather than the Chief Health Officer, the role of making health orders. Those found guilty of intentionally and recklessly breaching public health orders face two years in jail or a $90,000 fine under the proposed laws. More than 60 QCs have also signed an open letter taking issue with Mr Andrews' pandemic bill, which they say would allow him to rule by decree. Signatories include Jack Rush QC, former Chief Crown Prosecutor Gavin Silbert's SC, and former IBAC Deputy Commissioner Andrew Kirkham QC. The Victorian Bar has called for the Andrews government to take the bill back to the drawing board and warned that the legislation allowed for grossly insufficient parliamentary supervision. Mr Krasenstein, Managing Director of Kilara Capital, a climate-focused venture capital and private equity fund, is not the typical Liberal Andrews critic. He's donated significant sums to the Climate 200 Fund set up by renewables advocate Mr Holmes Accord to support independent campaigns and hopefuls, including Zali Stegall, Julia Banks and Helen Haynes. Mr Krasnerstein said while he and others are reluctant to speak out publicly because of fear of repercussions, the Public Health and Wellbeing Amendment, Pandemic Management Bill, had compelled him to take a stand. We are not anti-vaxxers and we agree we need legislation to govern pandemics. We agree with that. And it's better to have the power in the hands of ministers rather than unelected bureaucrats. We agree with that too, Mr Krasnerstein said. But we don't need clauses which, for example, give the power to have authorised officers enter into homes without a warrant and detain people and a complete lack of judicial oversight. An Andrew Forrest philanthropic vehicle will invest 5 million euro, that's 7.8 million Aussie, 
as a cornerstone investor in a new European impact fund that is focused on what is known as the blue economy. Minderu Foundation is part of a group of four investors to commit 60 million euro to the 150 million euro inaugural impact fund of London-based firm Ocean 14 Capital. The firm's name refers to the 14th goal in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal Framework, which is to conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas and marine resources for sustainable development. The chief executive of Minderu Foundation's flourishing ocean initiative, Tony Warby, says it was important to Dr Forrest Foundation that the Ocean 14 Fund would go further than traditional ESG investing. And governments must set a date for banning the sale of cigarettes through retailers including supermarkets and find new ways of boosting revenue without relying on tobacco excise taxes, leading public health researchers say. It comes as research published in the Medical Journal of Australia on Monday found 1,466 respondents, or 52.8%, to a Victoria Council Council survey agreed with phasing out the sale of cigarettes in retail outlets. In a separate MGA piece, also published on Monday, Associate Professor Coral Gartner, an international expert in tobacco control policy with the University of Queensland, and her colleagues wrote it is time for governments to move beyond measures that focus on consumers, such as planned packaging laws and tobacco harm warnings, and start focusing on supply. The Netherlands has passed laws preventing supermarkets from selling cigarettes from 2024. New Zealand has proposed new measures that include significantly reducing the number of tobacco retail outlets and possibly removing nicotine from cigarettes, while California cities Beverly Hills and Manhattan Beach ended tobacco sales on the 1st of January this year. And home ownership has declined more among younger and poorer people than across the population as a whole, an inquiry into housing affordability and supply herd. While Australia's overall home ownership rate has fallen from about 70% to 66% over the past 20 years, the decline in younger and lower income was more severe, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. In the middle income quintile, ownership has dropped from 73% to 65%, and in the second lowest quintile, it's actually dropped from 68% to 61%. For those aged 35 to 44, it's decreased from 73% to 61%. And for those aged 25 to 34, it's actually decreased from 52% to 37%. And the corporate regulator has accused investment spruker James McWinney, who created the Fizzle Mayfair 101 Group, of raising funds in breach of court orders. The 37-year-old has been sued in the federal court with the Australian Securities Investments Commission, accusing him of contempt. Mr Mawini has previously maintained any activities were taken subject to legal advice to ensure he was complying with the law. Comment was being sought for him on Tuesday. The entrepreneur shot to attention in 2019 when Mayfair bought Dunk Island, only to have it repossessed last year. Mayfair had backed ventures from a restaurant payments app to a mobile laundry service, raising funds through old-school seminars and B-grade celebrities highlighting the venture on Instagram. Mayfair reassured investors, including retirees and fathers saving for their children, that their money was being invested safely and its products were an alternative to banking deposits. But more than $210 million in investor funds are now frozen. Justice Stuart Anderson, in levelling the banning order, said Mr Mulwiney had to be stopped to protect the public from a great risk of financial loss. He branded Mr Mulwiney's conduct in promoting investors tied to his Fizzle Mayfair 101 outfit as reprehensible and demonstrating a complete dis disregard for financial services laws. And the total value of Australian banknotes has doubled in a decade and is up 20% since the start of the pandemic as more Australians hoard cash under their mattresses, indicating uncertainty about the future. The rise of card payments mean there's less cash circulating in the economy. 
but a banknote search has been driven by people who want to store their wealth in paper money rather than putting it in a commercial bank, according to the Reserve Bank. In an issues paper on cash distribution, the RBA acknowledged low interest rates have made hoarding cash relatively more attractive given current returns on cash and the banks are so low. The reduced use of cash for spending combined with the hoarding dynamics is having a negative impact on the cash in in transit industry that moves cash around in armoured trucks. This has prompted the RBA to suggest a consolidation or the formation of an industry utility might be necessary to ensure cash transport remains commercially viable. Lower demand to move money around comes as more people hide it at home. The value of Australian banknotes in circulation totaled $100 billion last month, double the value in 2010, while the value of banknotes in circulation rose 20% between February 2020 and October 2021. Measured as a ratio to GDP, the value of currency in circulation reached a historic high in the past March quarter at 4.8%, the RBA said in its Review of Banknote Distribution Arrangements. Since the start of the pandemic, the RBA says overall demand for banknotes has been extraordinarily high. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Jason Eisner, a co-founder of BrandQuest, a strategy, culture and brand management company that builds enduring and valuable brands. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and jobs figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 